You're listening to Drunk Church History with Lucas Allen and Josh Casey. Welcome to Drunk Church History, hosted here in St. Arnold's Pub, home to good stories, tasty brews, and a contemplation on the fact that we are talking to you through a little rectangle in your pocket that contains all the knowledge from the whole history of man, which sounds a bit like magic and would indeed have likely led anyone carrying a smartphone back to medieval Europe to be burned at the stake as a witch. Speaking of which... We have some guests here tonight. My name is Josh, and with me tonight is not Lucas, who is home with the plague. Uh, but, you know, we, if it's the coronavirus, Mike Pence is on it, so he's not here. In his place, we have some very special guests that I'm excited to introduce to you. Bree and Fry from the F- Pontifax Podcast. Hello. Hi. Hi. Yes, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Everybody. Everybody. So uh, tonight, we have got the Real Dead Poet Society. We have Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory, and we have Popes where you don't expect Popes to be, and so much that more. For sure. Yes. <laughs> we have some real stories from real people's interactions with the church, the good and the bad. Some stories like our own are pretty recent, while others are thousands of years old. So feel free to grab a seat at the bar, pour one out for old St. Arnold, the patron saint to Belgian brewers and hot pickers, and as always, caveat audience. Dear listener, beware, the stories we'll hear tonight will all be true, but as the alcohol intake goes up, expect the accuracy to go down somewhat. Also, there will be plenty of language, so leave the kids with the sitter. And speaking of which, as my small child once said... What'd you say? Did you get fucked up? Hey, yeah. Yeah, sure. sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, before we begin our tales, we've got one more item of business to take care of, and that is the trigger for this week's, week's shots game. So... After much study and deliberation, our guest barkeep, that would be Bree, has determined that every time, what is mentioned? Death sentences. Death sentences. Nice. (laughs) Every time death sentences are mentioned, shots shall be poured for the house. So, starting with this one, which reminds me, what are are you lovely ladies drinking tonight? Go ahead, Fry. Oh, um... Well, it looks like I have a Cider Boys Grand Mimosa. It's not my favorite Cider Boys, but it's the current seasonal. <laughs> it's what they got. <laughs> yeah, it's what's there. That's that's my that's and, the and, best kind of alcohol. And I am drinking Berry Poppins tea from David's Tea. <laughs> Very nice. No booze. No booze. <laughs> hey, you know what? Respect. Just uh, drink what makes you happy, right? Oh, yes. It's making me very happy. And it is the only amusing tea name I had in my entire collection, which let me down, personally. <laughs> yeah, I know. I really expected more from you. Jeez. So. I know. I, I combed that tea cabinet, and Barry Poppins was the funniest one I could well, find. You probably I mean, Bear Trap is pretty funny. You don't have any Bear Trap left? It's discontinued, Fry. Why do you I rub know. salt in the wound? <laughs> I still have some. Well, good for you. <laughs> Sounds like an age-old fight here. But, you know, you probably went wrong when you tried to comb your cabinets. I feel like that that probably kind of messed some things up for you. I know. It's a big cabinet, too. It's taller than I am, and it is full of <laughs> I know that feeling. I'm I'm 5'6". I know the whole I can't reach into my own cabinets thing. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, John brought me more so. booze. Hey, that's great. <laughs> I don't. I have to get up and go get my own here in a minute. That's the sad thing. I'm, I'm finishing a Guinness at the moment, so. Thank you. It's for me. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> All right. Well, with our with our tea and our booze, we can now say to St. Arnold and death sentences. Cheers, ladies. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So, Fry, I believe that you have been apprised of the situation and you possibly have a story or some stories for the barkeep tonight. 
Another Caucasian, Gary. Right, dude. Oh, gosh. I mean, I was apprised of the situation, but I don't know what sort of stories to even tell. Okay, so, well, I have some questions for you. So your your dad is is, is a deacon, right, in the Catholic Church? Yes, and so you, he is. you grew up around kind of a very devout family experience then? Um. Well, he became a deacon maybe about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, prior to that, like, we went to church, but it wasn't, like, a thing. Hmm. Very nice. I, uh... Did he convert... Yeah. Did he uh, convert your whole family then? Because you've got nuns, and you've got everything in the family. No. No. Look. I told you. With spectacles, testicles, wallet, and watch. Spectacles, testicles, wallet, and watch. That's it. Um, I don't think we have nuns in the family. That's John's side. <laughs> um, oh, but, um, no, it, it seems like his sisters went first down the rabbit hole and then <laughs> he followed at some point. Oh, man. Like, like Aunt Mary. Yeah, Aunt Mary. <laughs> we love Aunt Mary. You love Aunt, is she, is she, so she's not a nun though? No. I mean, I, I got to meet her when I came down for my bachelorette, which was also our podcast release day. <laughs> and um, we were talking about what we were going to be doing with the show. And we basically were describing how we were going to judge how big of a douche St. Peter was. <laughs> and Aunt Mary enthusiastically smiled and went, yeah, Peter was a douche. <laughs> and... Yes. I've loved her ever since. That is fantastic. I want to meet Aunt Mary too now. Sounds like my kind of Aunt my kind of person. Great. She's great. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Yeah, I uh I grew up as a pastor's kid. Um and so I basically was like a church rat. I just I just lived in the church all, all the time. I was there every day basically it seemed like. So it's it's weird for me sometimes to realize that there are some people that had actual lives. You know, like they they didn't just go to church every single day for the hell of it. So, <laughs> literally for the hell of it. Literally, oh, I for do the have a it. funny story for the barkeep. Yes. It's not about dad though. Okay, but it's a funny story. Um, so so I guess tangential to dad being a deacon, he's a deacon in a small town in the middle of the corn. <laughs> um, but um, so my daughter. My daughter Scarlett was taking uh, karate classes, and the priest, uh, he's about my Bree's age, was like, oh, do you want to show me some karate moves? <laughs> and uh, my dad goes, yeah, show him. And she immediately puts the priest in a headlock. <gasps> That's awesome! <laughs> and, like, gets God. him real good. And my dad loves telling that story. God, that is amazing. <laughs> Does he tell it from the pulpit? Because that sounds like something Deacon Dad would do. Um, you know, I'm not ever. I'm not sure if he's ever told it from the pulpit, but he. It's one of his favorite anecdotes. Oh man, that is so great. Is your is Scarlet still in uh, in karate? No, we moved away from the dojo by a, a while. Like it would be. It's too long to get there and then do all the karate and yeah. then come home and do homework and 
No, I get that. My uh, life. my nine-year-old son, he's he's a purple belt with some sort of stripe now, so he's he's all up in it right now. That's awesome. But I did yeah. that as a kid. I got my black belt when I was like eleven. That's awesome. Or something. I was totally that kid too. <laughs> I was I was the kid that was getting picked on, so I, I probably should have done the should have done the karate thing, so I could have some sort of self defense. But nope, I just decided to let people pick on me. I think it's easier. No, you just could hide in the church since you were there. Exactly, all the time. that's true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and then for some stupid reason, I was like, you know what? Maybe I should become a pastor. And then the church was like, Nah, I think we're gonna like fuck you over a few times. <laughs> I was like, All right, I'm never going back. And yet, for some reason, I still want to tell these stories. <laughs> but uh, but those stories have been told on other podcasts, so we'll keep that for another time. <laughs> and, you know, that reminds me of a story that you're going to remind me of. So, Bree, have you ever told me the one about Dante? I have not told you the one about Dante. Are you prepared for the one about Dante? You know what? Whether Ready or not, here we go. You're a long way from home, yuppie boy. I'll start a tab. <laughs> okay, so before we get into Dante, because in order to understand all of Dante's whole life, we need to understand the Guelph and Ghibelline conflict, because that is pretty much everything that happens to him. So this is an ongoing conflict or through the 12th and 13th centuries that had significant political consequences in Germany and Italy, particularly in the Republic of Florence, where Dante is from. Why, uh, why Germany so, as well? Because it's, well, what it boils down to really is the simplest terms are a power struggle between the papal states, most of Italy, and the Holy Roman Emperor, most of Germany. Mm. So they're fighting mostly for dominance and territory. We have both the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor who at this point think that they are the highest universal authority on the planet. So that inevitably puts them at odds in almost everything. So the Guelph faction supported the Pope and the Papal States, and the Ghibellines supported the Emperor. And for our purposes, the Republic of Florence was generally Guelph, at least from about 1266 onwards. And then in 1289, the Florentine Guelphs thoroughly defeated the Ghibellines in the battles of Campaldino and Vico Poissano. Now, remember that, because we're going to come back to that. The battles of something and something. Something and something. Campaldino and Vico Pisano. Now, after the, <laughs> after the defeat of the Ghibellines in Florence, the Guelphs took power, and then they started to fight among themselves, and they form two splinter factions. So we have the Black Guelphs, who continue to support the influence of the papacy in Florence, and we have the white Guelphs who were opposed to papal interference in the Republic and want more independence from the Pope. That seems real backwards. It, yeah. it does seem a little backwards. It would be yes. much easier if the one who liked the Pope was the white one. Yeah, and, and and this is particularly important to both parties because the the white Guelphs really, really want independence from the current Pope, who will be Pope Boniface VIII. 
And he's the Pope who issued the Unum Sanctum Papal Bull, which says that the Pope is literally the supreme authority on Earth above all secular leaders. So you can imagine how much this guy had all the desire for the interference. He wants his fingers <laughs> in everything. Every pie. That's that's pretty amazing. So uh, when he like uh, when he puts that out, d- he doesn't I mean, he doesn't command armies necessarily. So how does he have the ability to back up that sort of shit talk? Well, at this time, because we're dealing with the Papal States, he actually does have armies oh. and he does have a lot of territory under his control. And, and we've seen the development of papal authority as the prime authority on the planet. Basically, you could argue back to Peter, but effectively maybe Pope Leo or Pope Gregory the Great. So they've been arguing this for mm-hmm. 600 years now. So he does have people behind him that are prepared to fight to that point. That is awesome. So so out of uh, kind of a side note here, how... Uh... How, how many uh, months until you guys get to this particular story in your podcast? Boniface the Eighth. Yeah. <laughs> we're about 600 years that's, away. That's what I thought. I thought we're looking at probably yeah. a good year. So you said this, is be, this would end up being like, what, a five-year project or something? Abs- yeah, if we never took a single break, it was going to take like 5.2 years to do all 266 <laughs> popes. But we also do councils and that's we travel. True. So it's going to take a while, but we're going to do it. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you jumped ahead of the game for this one. Absolutely. Well, it's a great story. So that pretty much sets up the context for Dante's life. And going forward with Dante, we have three major sources on him. So I want to just credit our sources. We have what he tells us in his own writing. We have his biographer, Boccaccio, who was like a near contemporary student. And then we have Leonardo Bruni Arantino, who wrote a more straightforward biography, basically in response to Boccaccio's, because Boccaccio's is just like very, very flowery. And (laughs) it's just, it is a piece of fan letters for sure. Like it is, it is fanning himself over the glory that is Dante, so... Sounds a little Arantino is kind of, Well, you know, this is a thing that we find in religious texts that there are a lot of like fanboys writing. So Boccaccio is a Dante fanboy. <laughs> so jumping into Dante then, Dante Alighieri was born in 1265 in Florence to one of the oldest Florentine families. His family is considered to go all the way back to the founding of Florence with the the um, immigrants from Rome. He grew up with a competent education, and all sources say that Dante had an exceptional aptitude for learning and an intense interest in poetry, surprise, surprise, <laughs> including Tuscan poetry and the classics like Virgil, Horace, and Ovid. And then, when Dante was nine years old, he fell head over heels in love at first sight with a young girl named Beatrice Portinari. And I only bring this up because this is very important to his life. He is going to be passionately in love with this woman for the whole of his life. Even after he's engaged to and married to another girl, Gemma Donati, who will be his wife, 
and even after Beatrice died at the age of 24. Jeez. So his love for this woman, Beatrice, will be the source of inspiration for his poetry. And he and she ends up showing up in many of his works. So basically, it's really good that they didn't actually get together because then he would have like, you know, he would he would have experienced the mm-hmm. whole like, you know, morning breath. She would have seen him, you know, with his like, you know, beer gut at some point, And it just the magic would have been gone. And then we would never have had the comedy. And then you would never have this idea that becomes so important in like the medieval and renaissance literary world of courtly love, because he's considered one of the fathers of courtly love, loving from afar, and all of those things because of Beatrice. Really? That's, I, I did not, I know that he places her super, uh, like a position of super importance in the, in the comedy. I didn't realize mm. that he was so formative, like for that French tradition and stuff like that. That's crazy. Yeah, and he wrote about her in many of his works. His wife, though, and his yeah, children, that poor lady. not so much. <laughs> yeah. Only the manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what she was. And she died young, too, so she's the perfect manic pixie exactly. dream girl. And now, this week's edition of Josh Learns Cultural Terms. Manic Pixie Dream Girl and the initialization MPDG have been added to OxfordDictionaries.com. You almost certainly know the words manic, pixie, dream, and girl already. Together they form a noun used to designate a type of female character depicted as vivacious and appealingly quirky, whose main purpose within the narrative is to inspire a greater appreciation for life in a male protagonist. So... Coming back to this Guelph and Ghibelline conflict, Dante's family were Guelphs. And as a young man, Dante actually served in that decisive battle at Campaldino in 1289, where he fought mounted and in the front rank, according to Boccaccio. So his his fanboy says he legitimately fought then. Yeah, he fought like bravely on the front lines. Nice. Oh, he's so manly. Yeah, he is. Boccaccio writes a lot about how women are terrible, so he's like, manly. And so after the battle was won and the Guelphs decisively had power of Florence, Dante decided to go into public life. And with the way that Florence was run, in order to go into public life, you have to be a member of one of the guilds of Florence. So he decides to become a pharmacist and he joins the Physicians and Apothecaries Guild. And started working at CVS. Yeah, basically. And one of the articles I read about him becoming a pharmacist was like, that made logical sense because they sold books at apothecary shops, too. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Such a strange thing to say. I think that's even quoted on the Wikipedia article. It's just a very strange little trying to justify why Dante's a pharmacist. Anything to make a connection, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. He he started working at Walmart because they <laughs> sold books there, too. <laughs> yeah, but this is this is all for him to get into politics. And, and it works. It furthers his political career. And eventually he's elected to the Priory of the City, which is basically their, their council of governors. And he's a fairly influential figure in the Priory. And we get a, a great quote from Boccaccio, which, again, very flowery. 
And therein fortune was so favorable to him that no legation was heard nor answered, no law established or repealed, no peace made nor public ward undertaken, nor, in short, was any deliberation of weight entered upon until Dante had first given his opinion relative thereto. Man. Everyone just waits to hear what this man says. He's got all the words. He's got all the words. So... When the Guelphs begin to divide into this whites and blacks, Dante tries to rise above the factional divides and not to subscribe to one or one group or the other. Well, and to be clear, He's, they're winning right now, right? Like they're winning this 200 year civil war. Oh, yeah. The Guelphs are now like going to be in power for the rest of the whole time that this is a conflict. The Ghibellines are out. Right. But now they're fighting amongst each other, the whites and the blacks. And he's going, don't do that. I am a man without a party. Hmm. I'm not I'm not getting involved with this. That being said, Dante was still definitely white Guelph leaning and he definitely gets grouped with them over time. And this is especially evident when the whites do take power over the city and they start expelling the leaders of the blacks. And Dante is still sitting very pretty in his positions and of influence Mm. so for all intents and purposes he's now a white guelph suspect suspect but this expulsion (laughs) of the black leaders did not sit well with pope boniface the eighth because these are his supporters right these are the ones Uh, who want papal influence in florence the black hats are the the pope guys they're the pope guys all right and so he makes plans for a military invasion into Florence to restore his supporters. And so in 1301, Florence decides to send a delegation to the Pope, either to avoid this conflict or more likely to determine what was coming and try to head it off at the pass. So Dante is selected to head the delegation and he leaves for Rome, not knowing that he's never going to come back to Florence. So while Dante was meeting with the Pope, the Pope's appointed quote-unquote peacemaker, Charles of Valois, the brother of the King of France, enters Florence, backed by the Blacks. Florence is thrown into chaos and violence. The Blacks are restored to power, and the Whites all get exiled. And this includes Dante, who was charged in absentia of some trumped-up charges of, like, fraud and taking bribes. And even though he was, like, summoned back to the city, he had no chance to appear. He's in Rome. And so they go, oh, we called him. He didn't come. So he's condemned. So his property is confiscated. He's sentenced to a huge fine. And exile... On pain of death by burning at the stake if he returns. Oh, shit. Death sentence. Death sentence. Hey, take a shot. Yeah. George? Well, boss! Well, these little men finally caught off with the criminal of the century. Looks like the chair for George Nelson. Yup! Gonna electrify me. I'm gonna go off like a Roman candle. <laughs> One of thousand folks chasing a rabbit through yours truly. God damn. Yeah. So does his so, family like do they send him send them away? Do they keep them hostage? 
They actually um, are able to keep them in the city. And his wife, by law of of dowry, she's able to protect like a very small amount of property for her and her family. But the rest of her life is basically described as a meager existence. So neat. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe your husband so you, shouldn't get exiled. Right. Yeah. And you can imagine that Dante was informed of his exile and his death sentence with Pope Boniface watching very smugly. But then he's like, so, it's cool. I have a memory of a, of a dead girl in my head, so I can leave my family behind. No big. Yeah, and he does. He, there's, there's not really any effort to contact them. He's like, it's not Beatrice. Oh, well. So It's not me. It's you. Yeah, so he's now a furious exile, and he leaves Rome very quickly because he's not able to stand being near the Pope anymore, and he ends up in Verona as a guest of Bartolomeo della Scala. But he doesn't stay in one place for long because he's angry and he just wants to get moving, so he travels to Saranza, Casentino, Urbino, and Lucca, and some sources even suggest that he might have gone to Oxford and Paris. <laughs> including Boccaccio, but that seems really unlikely. And so he's angry, and from a distance, he tries to rally the other white Guelphs to retake power in Florence, to very little avail. So he writes to the citizens of Florence to rile them into just action or to compel them to recall him, also to very little avail. Not as popular as he thought he was. He is not as popular as he thought he was. And he really thought that this, this was going to work. <laughs> but then Dante sees a ray of hope. In 1310, the newly crowned Holy Roman Emperor, Henry VII of Luxembourg, marched into Italy with his troops. And Dante decides he's going all in behind this man because, look, he's coming into Italy. He's taking cities. I can convince him to take Florence. So he wrote personally to the emperor to demand that he take Florence to liberate the city from the blacks and to bring Italy together in unity. And in these letters, he also outlined to the emperor who he thought should personally be killed in the city, naming all of his enemies. (laughs) And then he writes to the city and to the Black Guelphs and threatens them with the might of the army and the vengeance of God. So I have a quote from Arantino here. It says, This election and the coming of Henry filled all Italy with the hope of great change, and Dante himself could no longer keep to his plan of waiting for pardon. With his pride of spirit aroused, he began to speak evil of the rulers of the state, calling them caitiffs and criminals, and threatening them at the hands of the emperor with deserved punishment. From this, he said, there was clearly no possible (coughs) escape for them. (laughs) So he's shit-talking real big. He's found found himself a a big bully that he can get behind. Mm -hmm. And this is also when he probably wrote one of his famous works called De Monarchia which is an exploration of monarchy and the power dynamics between the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. And, and basically, it's just a document trash-talking Pope Boniface VIII's Unum Sanctum and praising the merit of the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's going all in. And, and during this time, as Henry VII is on his way through Italy... The Black Guelphs in Florence had already started to pardon some of the White Guelphs 
and recalling people who were in exile. However, right around the same time, they received Dante's vitriolic threatening letters. (laughs) And they are made aware that he's listing them by name to the emperor as people that he should kill. Shit. So he becomes exempted from this pardon and his death sentence is reinstated. Death sentence. Take a drink. Here we go. (laughs) Was having second thoughts about the relationship. I've made a huge mistake. But when Job recommitted to her. I've made a huge mistake. I've made a huge mistake. But he's like, okay, it's fine. I'm still behind my man. (laughs) And in (laughs) in 1312. Stand by your man. He's safe. Exactly. And in 1312, Emperor Henry VII did reach Florence, did attack, and the blacks holding the city were totally defeated. They didn't have a chance. Nice. Now, Dante wasn't present at this battle because he couldn't bring himself to participate in an assault on his beloved Florence. And him being there probably would have destroyed any support he had with the white Guelphs. Mm. But he's he's pretty stoked. This is he's packing his bags. He's ready to come home. And, and then the emperor just kind of up and dies. Oh, and all of the progress he made across Italy gets snapped up by anti-imperial forces. Emperors Not are... Yeah. <laughs> Not safe. Emperors are want to do that. Yeah. And Dante's dreams of a glorious return to Florence are dashed. And he wearily returns to Verona and the Della Scala family that he'd stayed with before. He, he knows he's hooped, right? He had been the big shit talker. And it backfired. So the people that took over Florence after the emperor dies, they were they like they were still anti Dante at this point then? Yes, yeah, because everyone had seen his violent letters. Ah, yeah. And and after even and and the territory that the emperor had taken had kind of been snapped up by papal supporting forces, mm. so he didn't really have a lot of support there either even if it's not Florence. But then, a couple of years later, in 1315, the military commander who's been put in charge of Florence implements a general amnesty to both black and white Guelphs who are in exile. And he just says, everybody can come back. We're going to just put this all aside. You can all come home as long as you perform a public act of penance and you pay your ginormous fines. He even offers to commute Dante's death sentence to one of house arrest if he came to Florence, spent a little time in prison, and paid the fine. (laughs) And Dante goes, hell no. So his death sentence is reinstated once more. Dante. Dante has a very <laughs> healthy ego. That, that thing is, is well fed. It gets better. He probably has yeah. like shower conversations with Beatrice about his ego. <laughs> hey, you know, what he, what, he, what, what he does in the shower is his business, you know? <laughs> oh, but it gets better because the death sentence is now also extended to his sons. Oh, shit. No, they're still there. So, <laughs> I don't know if that counts as another one, but it's another death sentence. You know what? At least two. I'll take a drink for it. (laughs) It is at least two. He had two sons. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Dante, his final home was in Ravenna when he accepted an invitation from, you're going to love this name, Fry, Prince Guido Novella da Polenta. <laughs> Prince, he could, white guy book, Polenta. <laughs> white guy book, Polenta. So he comes to live with white guy book, Polenta, as a guest and a diplomat. And... This is where he'll write his most famous work, The Commedia, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So he died in 1321 on his way back to Ravenna from a diplomatic... A diplomatic mission to Alderaan. That. On his way back to Ravenna from a diplomatic visit to Venice, and he gets buried in Ravenna. Well, this is important because this is where he remains today, despite Florence's best efforts to get him back. What? Like they can't they've actually, they they want him back only after and they he's built, dead. After he's dead, a long way after he's dead, they even build a beautiful tomb for him in the Basilica of Santa Croce in 1829. It's gorgeous. They even have a giant sculpture of him out front of Santa Croce, and they're like, "Look, we have this beautiful resting place for him. Give him back." <laughs> and Ravenna's like, "Nah, no. nah, bro." <laughs> So no, did his sons have to leave Ravenna or wherever Florence? There Florence. we go. They did for a while, yes, because Dante does not get officially cleared of his exile and death sentence until June of two thousand and eight. <laughs> yes, so in June of two thousand and eight. The Florentine City Council approved a motion to revoke Dante's conviction of fraud and the standing death sentence against him and formally apologize. <coughs> they honor Dante with the gold florin, which is the city's highest honor, and they even invited Dante's descendant to attend the ceremony because he's still alive. This man's name is Piralvise Sergio Algieri. Damn, he still has like yeah, actual descendants with the same name and everything. Yes. That's crazy. And they invited him to come for this ceremony. And he did not attend. He re- he rejected yeah, their that, invitation. That seems fair. He's like, it, it's really quite funny. There are interviews with him about it. And he's like, they were not genuine hearted enough about it. <laughs> he's really mad that someone in the city council uh, argued against doing this. Yeah. So he's like, no, they're not genuinely sorry. It has to be so. unanimous and they have to be weeping when they come to me to ask. It's essentially kind of what it sounds like he wants. So it, it's, it was a very strange thing. That's, there are many articles from 2008 about it. What is it with Italians and, and admitting that they were wrong a thousand years too late? Like, was it, was it Vatican II or was it in the late 19th century where the Catholic Church finally admitted that, like, the Copernican solar system was correct? Like, it was super long. That was long. really recently. Yeah, like, yeah. It, was, like it was at least Vatican II, I want to say. Like, it mm. hasn't been that mm. long. Yeah. They uh, they only moved his body into a Catholic church for burial, like, maybe eight years ago. (laughs) Also, as a part Italian, I don't ever admit to being wrong. So, 
all of this aside, like his political legacy is not nearly as great or as important as his literary one, because most people know Dante purely for his writings. And, and one of the major reasons for this, and one of the most significant things about Dante's work, was that he uses the vernacular language instead of the traditional Latin when writing, which not only set a precedent and had other people follow his example, but it established Tuscan vernacular as the language that would stick among all of the Italian dialects. The Italian we know today comes from the Tuscan vernacular. And it makes literature more accessible for a greater audience, because the only people who would have had traditional Latin at this point would have been the highly educated. Wow. So for this, he's known in Italy as Il Somo Poeta, which is like the supreme poet. And he's one of the most famous writers of all time. That's awesome. Which segues perfectly into talking about his most famous and religious work written during his exile, which is definitely flavored with the experiences <laughs> from his life. So this is the Divine Comedy, or the Commedia, which is often called the greatest literary work in the Italian language and is one of the most famous pieces of literature in all of the world. I'm going to describe it to you, and then because we're the Popey ladies, I'm going to tell you about the popes yes. that Dante put in hell. The Commedia itself is a narrative epic poem written in three separate parts. It's Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. And it envisions Dante's soul on a journey through the afterlife where he travels through hell, purgatory, and heaven. He's accompanied mostly by Virgil, who is a first century Roman poet who's acting as his guide. And of course, Beatrice, the woman he loved. She especially gets to do all the stuff in paradise. Now, say so I've only I've only read the Inferno. So when does he meet Beatrice? Mm-hmm. Because I know he meets he meets Virgil in the wood, and then he's brought into the Inferno. And then when he comes out, where does when does he meet Beatrice? I think he, I I can't remember specifically. I think he meets her in in the Garden of Eden. Okay. So well, we'll go. I, I'm pretty sure it's in in paradise. And doesn't he do? In, in, uh, is the is the like the is the world like a? Doesn't he envision it sort of like an upside down mountain or something like that, where you go down and then then you have to climb the other direction or something? Yeah, kind of. So first you come into Inferno, where he travel. He descends through the nine rings of hell, observing divine eternal punishments fitting their sins. So we go through limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, and treachery. And then we go in Purgatorio, where we visit the mountain of Purgatory, so you are climbing upwards again. So there's two antechambers to Purgatory. You get for the excommunicate and the late repentant. And then you climb up the seven terraces, which are pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. And then on top of that is the paradise of the Garden of Eden. Now, you'll notice that a lot of the designations are the same as in hell. Mm -hmm. Like, we have lust in both. We have gluttony in both. And the difference here is it has more to do with whether or not the individual acted upon the nature of the sin or whether it was just a motivation or a thought. So the souls in purgatory didn't act on their predilections, and they can move up 
and be redeemed once their sin is corrected. Hmm. And then we continue to ascend into heaven in Paradiso with its nine planetary spheres. So each planet represents a part of heaven. So we have the moon for the inconstant, Mercury for the ambitious, Venus for the lovers, the sun for the wise, Mars for the warriors of the faith, Jupiter for the just rulers, Saturn for the contemplatives, the fixed stars for faith, hope, and love, and the primum mobile for the angels, and then the Empyrean for God. Hmm. So it's... It's quite a journey. You go down, you come up, and then you end up in space. You're in space. Heaven. Now, because we talk about popes, and this is a show about church history, and Dante definitely didn't have a great feeling about popes, <laughs> especially the popes of his day. Um, it's not a big surprise that Dante put a lot of popes in hell. Like a lot. Uh, there are a couple popes that get mentioned in Paradise, Pope Gregory I and Pope Aegyptus. And there are a couple in Purgatory. We have Hadrian V and Martin IV. And of course, St. Peter is all over the place. <laughs> Even though he's but a there douche. Are, yeah, he, well, he is. That's why he's all over the place, because place, he has to go up and he has to go down. So there are still a lot of popes in hell. And I'm going to tell you about the popes in hell. Yes. One's probably Benedict VIII. Oh, got it in one. <laughs> but you should also know the first Pope in hell, because we covered this, Fry. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? No. It's me. Anastasius. <laughs> Anastasius. <laughs> so, Anastasius II. He was a Pope during the Acacian Schism between Rome and Constantinople, which went on for about 35 years. He became Pope halfway through the conflict, and he really, really wanted the sides to reconcile. So he had agreed to recognize the sacramental acts of one of the patriarchs of Constantinople, Acacius, who had been previously condemned as a heretic. So he's like, look, this guy's still a heretic, but I'll recognize the sacraments he did. We'll, we'll meet in some middle ground. And then he welcomed an ambassador who may or may not have been a heretic, People seem to have mixed feelings on this. And so by doing these two things, he gets labeled as a traitor pope who had communion with heretics. <laughs> he wanted to make everyone get along and, and please nobody. You can't, so, mm-hmm. you can't make compromises in theology. He has to know this. Mm-hmm. You're either right well, or tried. you're dead. That's the, that's the only way. <laughs> he actually gets struck down by divine intervention <laughs> in the whole thing. And as such, Dante condemns him to the sixth circle of hell for heretics and blasphemers, where he's forever cramped into a flaming tomb with several other named heretics. One of them is very oven coffin. Phenomenal cosmic powers. Yes, it, yes, is that the one? And one of them is very fat. Is that the one where he walks by and there's like he talks to one or two people and then they're like, oh yeah, there's other chumps in here too with us. Yep, it's a clown exactly. car. <laughs> 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 so then we have Pope Celestine V, and he's portrayed in the antechamber of hell. And although he doesn't have a face, Dante is able to recognize the shade of him who, due to cowardice, made the great refusal. So he's thrown shade. Da- he is throwing shade, and this is why Dante has put him in hell because Celestine V abdicated the papacy 
which led to the election of Dante's enemy, Pope Boniface VIII. Oh, he's just mad. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, coward, how dare you? You go in the antechamber of hell. Nico's got that grudge going on. (laughs) Big time. So then we have Pope Nicholas III. And Pope Nicholas III is in the eighth ring of hell, where simony and fraud are punished. And mm, the rest of our popes are going to be in this circle. (laughs) Which, which, which makes sense, how Dante yeah. Felt about popes. Yeah, for sure. You can tell how he felt about popes based on that <coughs> alone. So, Nicholas's election to the papacy had been a difficult and contentious one, and mostly happened due to the influence of his family, which he then very much continued as pope, because he's known as, like, the nepotism <laughs> pope. So, Dante saw his election as, like, a purchase of the office, and condemns him for blind ambition, nepotism, and fixing election. I'm really glad that doesn't happen anymore. No. How things have changed. But the main reason that Nicholas is condemned to hell is because he's there to speak to Dante and announce the fate of others. So... The way that simoniacs and fraudsters are punished in this ring of hell is something called propagation. So Pope Nicholas is buried head first into the ground and his feet are set on fire. And he's like, yeah, slowly sinking down into the ground as new people get thrust in after him. Or, Or will be thrust in after him is the idea, right? They just keep sinking down. So, since he can't see, when Dante approaches, he speaks to Dante under the assumption that he's the next condemned soul to come to join him. And that next condemned soul is supposed to be Pope Boniface VIII. Nicholas has it all down. He's basically, like, making prophecies in hell. Yeah, say, aren't there a couple people that, when Dante's writing about them, they're not dead yet? And then they, like, they die before the whole thing is completed or something? Yeah, so he he sets the Commedia in the year 1300. So at that time, Pope Boniface would have still been alive. So they're talking about him like he's pre-condemned to death. So he's going to get no salvation, no redemption. Oh, well. So he obviously is condemned for greed, for treachery, for bribes, and for violating the beautiful woman that is the church. There's a lot of this metaphor in Inferno where the church is like the bride of the popes, but they've turned her into whores with their greed and their simony. And This is a man with a manic pixie dream girl. It is. <laughs> Yeah, so he's he's setting him up as pre-condemned because he wouldn't have been dead at the time that Dante is setting this. And then Pope Nicholas also tells Dante that another pope, not just Boniface VIII is due here, but also Boniface's successor, who's Clement V. So this guy who also is dead at the time that Dante is writing, but at the time he's set the Inferno wouldn't have even been pope yet. They're saying, oh, yeah, this guy's coming, too, and he's terrible, <laughs> and he's going to get it worse than all of us. And and this makes sense, because Clement V is very famous for greed, and he's the pope who moves the papacy from Rome to Avignon, and that's a big deal. 
He's also the Pope who condemned and executed the Knights Templar after taking significant amounts of money from them and not wanting to pay back. Oh. So, yeah, that is a Pope that not a lot of people are surprised to see in so, hell. Okay, so I remember something about their, I mean, I, I remember very vaguely this, this story about the, like, their being a pope in France versus or Francia versus there also being one in Rome. So was he considered a was mm-hmm. he considered an anti-pope at that point then? Or no, uh, no, he's the he was voted in as the legitimate pope. He's the one who first moved there. Okay, and then because the, a lot of people want to move the papacy back to Rome, we're going to start seeing popes and anti-popes fighting for a long time because the papacy's there for quite a while. Oh, okay. So in that time, we will have two and three popes at the same time. Oh. But he, he was the legitimate pope when he made that decision and, and upset everybody. And, and finally, <coughs> in the same circle of hell and Dante's extensive condemnation of simony, there's also a pope that kind of sort of gets mentioned that, you know, maybe he's in hell and maybe he isn't, but he should be for this bit that he's talking about which is a reference to Pope Sylvester and the damage that was caused to the church by Emperor Constantine when he bestowed huge amounts of wealth mm. on the church. Because this is, this is obviously Constantine who converted mm-hmm. if, and gave the church a lot of money and legitimized Christianity as, an, as a religion that was legal. So Dante believes that this was the root of all of the greed of the church. So there's kind of a vague condemnation of Pope Sylvester who accepted Hmm. the donation of Constantine. But it's not as explicit as the other guys who literally are being buried and having their feet burned or are in oven tombs with fat guys. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, burns, burns. That's awesome. Yeah. So those are some popes in hell. That's been a journey. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that is that's fantastic. Like, especially with the with that kind of last one, the donation of Constantine piece. Like, it is funny when you read, like when you read current people <coughs> discussing, you know, the the nature of the church. So many of them want to look back and say, well, you know, if, if the church had not been co-opted by empire, maybe things could have been different. But, I mean, mm. it, it's almost it's almost as though if you really look at that, there is no alternate route. Like, the church dies out if it's not co-opted by the empire and allowed to, like, the space to expand. Well, he basically gave Sylvester a choice that I think we'd all take. Hey, we can keep killing you. Right. Or you can be safe and rich. Yeah. Well, it's so many. Which people, one are you gonna yeah, take? Yeah, so many times I read these. I read these. Uh, this the stuff about people, or where people are are claiming that basically, Constantine, con- like everything went wrong with Constantine. It's like no, Constantine didn't cause these problems. He just basically showed what was already there, you know. And um, mm-hmm. and so like Sylvester accepting that was he was actually making the right choice <coughs> for the right time. And then you know you can kind of see where things were already headed with the fruits of that later. Oh, we definitely wouldn't have a podcast if it weren't for Constantine. Our popes would be very short-lived. Oh, yeah. 
Which, you know, is, you know, we have to we have to thank Constantine for that. Otherwise, you know, you guys would already be done. We would. We would, we would be so done. <laughs> we wouldn't have had any of the wild journeys that we are having now. And you wouldn't have the, the the opportunity to later talk about popes that have, you know, like orgies with small children and stuff either. So, mm, yeah, that's coming. <laughs> Surprise, Fry. <laughs> Eventually. And Jude Law. Eventually. Uh. Oh, oh, we <laughs> we did do that one. Uh, there's there's a series on our Patreon called Bitch and Popes where we bitch about that show. Oh, so <laughs> much. And we're currently watching there there is a second season now. Did you know I this? I did not know. Oh, and and John Malkovich is pope now. Well, well in that case I definitely mm. need to tune in. <laughs> and it goes down a wild journey. Uh it's it's definitely different than the first season, so <laughs> That's awesome. I'm deep in it. Fry's still gotta, I gotta wade into that mess. <laughs> I can't deal with French fries and hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, she she takes on too much of a role there, but yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> well, that was a fantastic story, and I think with that, it's probably just about time to settle up the tab. So, you know, normally at this point, we would have, especially if Lucas was here with me, we'd sort of have a moment to kind of respond to the story. But I think that mm. what would be best is to include what you all do on your, your regular podcast, which is to rate the Pope, particularly based upon their face, which I think would be the best. So we should do that with Dante, I think. This is the wrong way to consume alcohol. Oh, and and, and I, I have some great photos yes. of Dante for you. I also have a contemporary description of Dante from Boccaccio. Ooh, so. nice. Well, it's going to make every... I mean, Boccaccio is going to make everything that he is like 10 you know up to 11 so oh and it gets better because there's there's this quote about what he looks like and then i want to show you the photos and then i have a follow-up quote from boccaccio about what people thought of dante's appearance and what he thought of what they thought so here's the quote from the life of dante our poet was of moderate height and after reaching maturity he was accustomed to walk somewhat bowed with a slow and gentle pace clad always in such somber dress as befitted his ripe years his face was long his nose aquiline his eyes rather large than small his jaws were large and the lower lip protruded beyond the upper his complexion was dark his hair and beard thick black thick black and curled and his expression ever melancholy and thoughtful <coughs> so this is the most famous image of dante and it's painted by sandro botticelli who's my favorite painter try oh yeah yeah one. that one yes this is a very famous <clears throat> image of this man it is iconic to say the least does he but... have a hat on under his hat he has, yeah, he has the little skull cap on, and then he's got his Florentine red hat, and then the laurel leaves around his head. It's an expression. A Florentine his, red hat. It's not like a, you know, Charles Dickens nightcap. <laughs> no, no. Uh, the Florin, the Florentines love a good red hat, and we're going to get into, like, the Medici bankers' hats, and uh, it's... There is some fashion happening here. Yeah, I I also see on the 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 image search results here down kind of a few pictures in where it's it's a similar picture, but he's like majorly scowling, super angry looking, <laughs> he's real like mad. he's super pissed. 
Yes. Um, this this is the thing about Dante's face. Is it's iconic. When you see an image of Dante, you see that nose, that chin, and that scalp in every single one. Why is he so and frowny? Go, he's he's melancholy and thoughtful, Fry. Oh. And if you if you scroll down a little bit, there's an image of a sculpture in blue. Oh, That's he's the sculpture. really frowny too. He's an emo kid. <laughs> yeah. That is, um, that's in front of Santa Croce, in front of the, the church that has his tomb that Florence wants to put him in. So he's really unhappy oh his God, body's that, not there as well. That picture is amazing. So this is normally where we would rate him out of 10. Oh, shit. Look, the sculpture one 100% looks like Neil Patrick Harris's Count Olaf. He does! It looks exactly <laughs> like him! I am Count Olaf. The renowned actor and your new guardian. You're welcome. <laughs> the Baudelaire orphans come out of the woodwork and are like, no, that's not a famous Italian poet. That's Count Olaf. It's, it's Neil Patrick Harris with lots, of, a... with lots of makeup. <laughs> yes. And if you if you go one more row down, there's also the famous death mask of Dante there. It's uh, it's in the. It also um, has a scowl. It also has a scowl. Even yes, this death. is very famous. I see it. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's on display at Palazzo Vecchio in Florence. It's not considered legitimate these days, but it, it definitely has his his frown <coughs> and his scowl, so it works. Maybe that's why. Maybe it was his scowl that really turned off the. Uh, um, Beatrice. Yeah, Beatrice. She's like, dude, you need to smile at least a little bit. Yeah. I mean, this kind of works for the quote I'm going to read you, but but surely, why don't you rate him first, and we'll oh, go from there. Oh, man. I mean, <laughs> God, like, he's not he's not an ugly man, particularly the Neil Patrick Harris version of him here. Yeah, the Neil Patrick <laughs> Harris one, as Count Olaf, I would give an eight. Yeah, like, that's, like, if we're, go, if we're going off the sculpture the, in the... the you know, near the tomb that he's not in, you know, yeah, you, you gotta mm-hmm. give him a seven or an eight. I'll, g- I'll give him a seven for sure. Awesome. Uh, for me, Dante's a 10. That face is iconic. You can look at any painting of that man and go, Dante, <laughs> look at that man. It's Dante. So that's a 10 for me. Now, everyone else kind of felt the same way because Dante's appearance and his scowl made people believe that maybe he went to hell. So (laughs) (laughs) this is the follow-up quote. And thus it chanced one day in Verona when the fame of his works had spread everywhere, particularly that part of his commedia entitled The Inferno. And when he was known by sight to many, both men and women that he was passing before a doorway where sat a group of women, one of them softly said to the others, but not so softly that she was distinctively heard by Dante and such as accompanied him. Do you see that man who goes down into hell and returns when he pleases and brings back tidings from those that are below? To which of the other ones naively answered, You must indeed say true. Do you not see how his beard is crisp and his color darkened by the heat and smoke down there? (laughs) Hearing these words spoken behind him and knowing that they came from the innocent belief of the women, he was pleased and smiling a little as if content that they should hold such an opinion. Oh, he really liked that he looked crispy. He, he, <laughs> he, 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 
loved that people thought he was crispy. Oh my god, Bree, look at this statue of Dante with the boob. Wait, what? It's it's not loading for me. Send it to me on Messenger. Okay, hang on. Oh wait, I see it. Oh yeah, look at that. Discord. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you for that. That makes every that that makes my night for me right there. No. You mentioned his... Is it, is it an anatomically placed boob, at least? <laughs> yeah, it's in a good spot. Oh, He's, yes. And he has a very so well-defined arm there, too. Like, look at that. Mm-hmm. He's got some muscles. This is actually his tomb. It's inside Santa Croce. He's on top. There's a woman below representing Italy, and she's like, oh, look at the divine poet hand. man. <laughs> That's yeah. her arm there? Yeah, she's, okay. She's gesturing at Dante and his boob. Behold a titty. Behold the boob. <laughs> You can milk yes. anything with nipples, Greg. <laughs> I I think he would be he would continue to be incredibly disapproving of you if you did. That. So he, you mentioned multiple times that he has a beard, but there's literally not a single picture with him with a beard. His beard is he's too never painted with a beard. <laughs> maybe he had a maybe he actually like he really had a shitty uh, you know patchy beard. And so they just <laughs> never pictured him with it. It's just Boccaccio yeah, being generous. Exactly. <laughs> the, the, he had like the mustache, and they're just, dude, you need to shave that. It's bad. Well, and then he was very offended from that point and on. And that's why he scowls. <laughs> yes. How dare they talk about my mustache? Why don't they like uh, my beard? <laughs> I tried my really crispy hard. Beard. I tried really hard. <laughs> oh man. I just hope it's a good look. It's it's iconic. It's so this is great. Like, yeah, as soon as you said that it was like the iconic picture of him, I was like, oh, yeah, that's the one with him in the red cap. And then but all these other ones yep. like he's always scowling. The dude is always pissed all the time. Resting. He was a permanent exile with a death sentence forever. I mean, you know, but he also shit talked a lot of people. So <laughs> he, he did. He had the the the. the the uh, Inferno is like the world's best burn book ever. <laughs> <laughs> Who is our patron saint of burn books, Fry? We oh, have I one. Forgot. You've got the chart. I'm pulling it yes. up because we definitely made one of our popes the saint patron saint of burn. Because books. didn't he also like include a bunch of other people he just didn't like? Yes, <laughs> yes. He he put so anybody who crossed him in life definitely ended up in that book that's that's really convenient if you're a poet and really inconvenient if you are the guy who crossed like the world's greatest poet ever it's Mm -hmm. the most aggressive friend fiction it is (laughs) fry it it's of course pope vicious oh yeah vicious (laughs) sericious He's the patron saint of the burn book oh god that's amazing he he didn't end up in hell so you know maybe they're buddies now yeah they they he recognized a kindred spirit <laughs> oh man that is fantastic oh thank you so much for that <laughs> <laughs> i'm so glad you enjoyed the story of dante indeed well uh, well hey as we uh, we kind of move towards the end here and they they uh, either tell us to tell us they're going to take our keys or send us away i want to know if you guys have a uh, time for a lightning round real quick yes Mm-hmm. All right, so lightning round. Got a got a couple got a few questions here for you. Uh, first one, what is your uh, your guilty pleasure food? Oh, mm. pie. Pie. What kind of really pie? pie? Do you have, do you have a specific pie? pie? Um, I 
I just, I, any kind of berry pie mm. is delicious. There's, there's this local, like, uh, berry farm around here that does this pie that's like six inches high piled of berries with custard and I could eat an entire one by myself. Nice. And have. And have. <laughs> oh, yes. We ordered way too many of them for our wedding party, so we came home with like six extra pies and I went to work. <laughs> that's amazing. Nice. Uh, ben and Jerry's makes mm. a cinnamon roll ice cream. Oh, I haven't tried that one. Mm. And that one is A plus. That's that sounds amazing. I I might have to go to the store tomorrow for that. Well, um, try not to get the one made with just almond milk. I mean, it's not bad, but it's not not as good. The, yeah, it's not the Ben and Jerry's. Mm. All right. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. Uh, most recent show that you've been binge watched. Oh, I know what fries is, isn't it? What? Oh, I, I just, I did the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, I want to see. Do that. you actually know what the answer is to mine? Isn't it love is blind? You oh like... no. Um, that was like last <laughs> week. Um, <laughs> you were hooked. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I finished the, uh. That's old news. There was like a whatever reunion show last night but that doesn't count as binge watching that just counts as watching the new episode um i recently powered through both the new season of altered carbon and the handsmaid tale because for whatever reason i didn't like body autonomy this week (laughs) during my cold and flu so so you're in a dark place right now (laughs) that's depressing (laughs) it is a little what is done that's amazing. Uh, let's see here. Uh, what Hogwarts house are you in? Gryffindor. Ravenclaw. Nice. See, I thought I was going to be in Ravenclaw, but Pottermore says I'm Gryffindor, so they're know. a liar. Don't listen to them. Doesn't yeah, matter I... what <laughs> side of the river you go on. Screw them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still really upset at Pottermore because I was taking my Patronus quiz, and then my dog distracted me, and I walked away from my laptop for a minute, and apparently it's all time reaction based, so I got something really bizarre and inaccurate, <laughs> and they won't reset it. <laughs> you take too long, so you get the ant. Yeah, I got like a like a calico cat or something, and I'm like, <laughs> what? I got an otter, which I mean, I don't hate. I don't. Even, I do oh, love shoot. those I can see water that. noodles. <laughs> <laughs> they're little bits of happiness in life you know otters yeah mm-hmm. they're adorable let's see here um all right here we go. how have you disappointed your parents <laughs> every second of oh. every day my friend <laughs> they're not mad they're just disappointed um i know that the first time that I got a comment from my mom about the podcast was Fry had just told a, a story about climbing climbing a pyramid in Mexico with uh, one of your fellow classmates and his toenails fell off because he was wearing flip-flops. And I said, it serves him right. He deserved it for being that stupid. <laughs> and my mom was like, Bray, Anne! <laughs> she was very disappointed in me for that one, apparently. Wow, that that's a so low threshold. <laughs> you can't of insult all the flip flops. <laughs> My mom thinks Fry is the funniest person ever. So then there's me going, "Good, I hope his toenails did fall." <laughs> I hope he bled for days. Yeah, yeah. Who climbs things in flip flops? You're asking that's for true. it. Fry, do you have do you have any nice moments? 
Oh, um, oh, John's coughing. Well, he's got the disease too. Um, oh no, we're all diseased. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, what did I do? Mom was mad at me, but I forgot why. <laughs> that's that's the best way to do well, it. Well, we did have to keep the podcast secret for quite a long time because Fry was really not sure how her parents were going <laughs> to react. They just they they put up with it. Um, apparently, the, <laughs> they the the office lady who was my eighth grade CCD teacher uh, listens to it at work, and the priest <laughs> is displeased. That's amazing. <laughs> That's still my favorite. I'm so happy about oh, that. That's so great. Oh man. Alright, and then the last one here. Uh yeah. who from history would you be afraid to meet because they'd likely be a dick? Oh, there's so many. Everybody. Yeah, all the people we I, like. I think the one that would crush me the most would be Lorenzo de Medici, because that's like the Medici are mm-hmm. my everything. <laughs> but um yeah, I think I'm gonna have to go with that. I mean, I would be, I would be afraid to meet Edward the Sixth as well, the King of mm-hmm. England, because I love him, but he was a child, and I have this, like, I have my very strong opinions about him, and I'd be afraid that he would not match my expectations. <laughs> I mean, you know, he had a lot to, he had a lot going on. Well, and that's my big argument is I think he was actually very active in his own reign, whereas most people are like child puppet, and I'm like diaries say different but <laughs> you know if he, he if i showed up and he was really stupid it would break my heart yeah that's you know <laughs> what about you fry oh i don't know i feel like meeting anybody from history would be a mixed bag <laughs> <laughs> just anybody at all so all like, they're all like, dicks. Ta- yeah it'd be like talking to your grandparents where you're like don't say that yeah <laughs> <laughs> we don't use that True. word anymore grandpa <laughs> Oh man! And with uh, with that, I think it looks like we're getting cut off. So, <laughs> so again, a huge thank thank you to uh, the the wonderful ladies of Pontifex. This has been fantastic. Yeah, so thank you, and uh, send all of your com- comments, questions, concerns, or corrections to drunkchurchhistory at gmail dot com. Be sure to leave a tip for the barkeep by posting reviews on Apple Podcasts. And if you two don't mind, I've got it. We got it. Got a couple here. I'm gonna read real quick. Yeah, Let me pull them up here. Oh, you read your reviews. Fancy. Well, we, you know, we've only got a couple at a time here, so it's all right. We, I told people that that was they they needed. We just needed the reviews, period. And so I told them all you have to do is write it is good and give us five stars. And and uh, B Voss wrote it is good and gave us five stars, which is fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Those are the best. They are the best. Let's see. We have another one here that says, uh, I love listening from Sonex781, who says, I love listening to these old stories retold in a fun, entertaining way. Pick a theme, sit back, have a few drinks, learn church history. What more could you ask for? You could obviously ask for a collab with the Pontifex ladies, which is what we did today. So... You can follow Yay. follow us on all the things. We are at Drug Church History on Facebook and Instagram. We are at DCH Pod on Twitter. Uh, you can follow Lucas, assuming he survives the plague. He is at Luke Allen Yo on Twitter, and I am at the JM Casey. And I write sober things at JoshuaMCasey.com, mostly sober. Ladies, where uh, where can we find you on the social medias? 
Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and, well, pretty much everywhere at Pontifax Pod. Mm-hmm. And you can find our podcast at pontifax.podbean.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. And uh, thank you for drinking with us, everyone. And we will see you next time. Thank you for yeah, having thanks us. Thanks for having us. Definitely. And goodbye. And goodbye. Peace. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I fell into a ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire